0: a secret to share with you. Over the last four years, I have had trouble admitting that I'm a minister. I don't particularly feel like a minister. I don't necessarily think people see me as a minister. There are all of these great ministers around me, but I'm not one of them. Surely, I don't measure up. If only I had Dr. Nan's understanding of the Old Testament, or Dr. Still's ability to read Greek as easy as English, or Dr. Gregory's gift of making a life altering Word of God out of any story. If only I could just get to that place where I feel like maybe I'm good enough to do this. And so as I traveled through seminary feeling quite burdened and not the least bit worthy, I set my eyes on that moment when I would feel affirmed as a minister, and I waited. And yet, here I am now, wondering what I'm doing here, wondering why I'm standing here, and it took four years, but I'm beginning to realize that maybe the understanding and acceptance that God called me is enough. And that the experiences I've had while at Truitt are significant, whether I ever fully realized it or not. Along the way, something I have learned is just how different a journey can be from a quest. You see, a quest is like an avid search for something in particular. There's a definite end in mind. There's a goal, something to acquire, like a treasure hunt. But a journey isn't really like that, is it? A journey is like a progression. It's the time spent while traveling, it's the experiences you have, the twists and turns and speed bumps you encounter. On a journey, you see clearly what is around you, whether that's tall trees or flat plains or gigantic mountains, glimmering bodies of water, or even those beautiful Texas blue bonnets. On a journey, you take in the beauty and the burden and you're changed and transformed along the way. Indeed, you're headed somewhere, but it's the entire experience that shapes you, not just the end result. I sometimes wonder how I've spent my time here at Truett, as though I were on a journey or on a quest. I sometimes wonder if I could have done more to notice the Blue Bonnets. In the second chapter of 2 Kings, we see the story of two men on quite a roundabout journey, but a journey nonetheless. Elijah has been called first to Bethel, which is west of Gilgal, where the story begins, then to Jericho, which is southeast of Bethel, and then finally to the Jordan River, which is east of Jericho and near Gilgal, where the story began in the first place. Essentially, the route they take is a circle. It's almost as if the story is trying to emphasize this idea of a journey over a quest because they're not really headed anywhere in particular. The narrative shows this sort of desperation from Elisha as he follows his mentor from place to place, though he clearly knows separation is imminent. But what makes this story so interesting is that the majority of the text speaks of their journey, the seemingly endless circular trek in which Elisha, with fierce loyalty and devotion, follows Elijah until he's literally taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. The story speaks of a journey And after unpacking these verses and really looking closely at them, it becomes clear how much we can take from Elisha's journey because ultimately we are ministers just like Elisha. And if this story can teach us anything, it's that the faithful minister seeks growth and understanding in the journey, not the quest. So what kind of things can we take from Elisha's journey as we seek wisdom in our own? For one thing, the narrative implies that there is a necessary tension between devotion and adapting to change. Three times Elijah tries to dismiss Elisha as he travels from Bethel to Jericho and finally to the Jordan River. And each time he tells Elisha, stay here, and Elisha responds with, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Meanwhile, there's an audience, a company of prophets who are watching and wondering if Elisha knows that the time has come for his master to leave him. Elisha's devotion to Elijah is clear. Let there be no doubt, it's emphasized three times in three different scenarios. Elisha is determined to be faithful in his role, and yet I can't help but wonder if there's more to it than just devotion. Because twice when confronted by the prophets about Elijah's upcoming departure, Elisha answers, yes, I know, keep silent. So while it's clear that Elisha is devoted, could he also be wary of change? Erica Jong, an American author and teacher once said, I have accepted fear as a part of life, specifically the fear of change, the fear of the unknown. And I have gone ahead despite the pounding in my heart that says, turn back. These words resonate deeply with me as I look back on the world's shared history of brokenness. People down deep at the core are afraid of change. Whether it's processed through tears or hatred or resistance, it's proven true by the human story. Michael Simmons grew up in the North, so even though he was African American, the realization of the Civil Rights Movement didn't mean quite so much to him until when he was 10 years old, a young Chicago teenager by the name of Emmett Till was hung and burned to death for reckless eyeballing. In other words, Emmett Till was accused of looking at a white woman. This moment changed Michael's life. And over the years, he would experience police attacks on African-American high school students with high-powered water hoses. He would take part in peaceful demonstrations, and he was arrested unjustly many times. He was even on a bus that was set on fire by a mob. And yet, despite all of these obstacles, Michael spent his life continually pushing for change, Years later, while making a public address, Michael would be quoted as saying, I love my country, and I think it's a great country, but the people who made it great do not get the credit. America's greatness is the result of the determination of its oppressed people to make democracy work. I am convinced that the many people who resisted civil rights using hatred and violence were acting somewhere deep down out of fear, fear of the unknown, fear of something different, fear of change. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder to learn to fly while remaining an egg. And so it makes me wonder where we would be without people like Michael Simmons who saw a need for change and pushed for it despite great resistance Michael Simmons wasn't afraid to experience the growing pains that come with being hatched and learning to fly. Now, this example may seem a little extreme. Elisha, after all, is neither violent nor hatred in his resistance, and I'm guessing neither are we in our own ministerial contexts. Rather, Elisha, in his devotion, tries to elude change. He knows it's coming, and yet he doesn't seem ready or willing to face it. Elisha is devoted and loyal to Elijah, just like we would hope to be within our own ministries. But how do we decide when we're being loyal and when we're simply being afraid of letting go and accepting needed change? In a way, there's a fine line between fierce devotion and unrelentingly holding on in fear of the unknown. And this text challenges us to look within ourselves to find that healthy tension between devotion and change that will enable us to be the best we can be in our present ministerial contexts. But the story doesn't just show the relationship between devotion and change, it also shows us the importance of recognizing those seasons in our lives when we need to be mentored and when we need to step up and become the mentor. At this point in the narrative, Elijah has parted the Jordan River and walked over with Elisha following. Once they have crossed, Elijah asks Elisha what it is that he may do for him before he's taken away. Elisha responds with, please, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. What are we to make of this? Is Elisha being greedy or overly confident? I don't necessarily think so. Elisha asks for a double portion because he feels inadequate compared to the greatness of Elijah, who in this very moment has essentially been compared to Moses when he parted the river. Elisha does not seem to feel adequate or ready, and yet what we see of him is a picture of loyalty, devotion, and faithfulness. We know he is ready, even if he doesn't, and he has no choice because the text says that as they continued on... A chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah is gone, and Elisha's time has come to rise up as a leader in his own right. In a similar, albeit lesser sense, British author J.K. Rowling's best-selling Harry Potter series gives readers a small glimpse into this truth. At the culmination of the seventh and final book, Harry stands with his mentor Dumbledore in a place between life and death called King's Cross. Throughout the entire series, there have been so many unanswered questions, and now in this lingering place, Harry is finally gonna get some answers. He had survived and even thrived many of what should have been life threatening situations over the years. He had learned a lot from many friends and mentors, especially Dumbledore. And now, at this crossroads, he asks Dumbledore, why? Why wasn't it Dumbledore who had been the one to save the world? Or why wasn't it Dumbledore who was so great and powerful and good accepted some of the opportunities for power he had been offered? But you'd have been better, so much better, Harry said. Would I? asked Dumbledore heavily. He goes on to say it is a curious thing Harry but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who like you have leadership thrust upon them and take up their mantle because they must and find to their own surprise they wear it well. Now, if you've read or seen the Harry Potter installments, you'll know what I mean when I kind of compare Elijah to Dumbledore. He's that person in the story that everyone looks up to, and that he reminds us of the mentors in our own lives that we love, trust, learn from, and are grateful towards. Elisha surely felt this way because he asked for a double portion of his spirit. One portion would simply not be enough. Elisha is much like Harry, though, on a higher and greater scale, and He felt inadequate compared to his mentor whose shoes he couldn't fathom ever having to fill. You see, Elisha was not seeking leadership. In a lot of ways, he was running from it. But he had indeed been prepared and trained for that inevitable day that leadership would be thrust upon him. And in the moment when Elijah was taken, Elisha cried out, Father, Father, and he tore his clothes in grief. Because he loved and cared for his mentor, and he was sad to see him go. And though Elisha is clearly upset by this loss and rightly acknowledges the situation, he also accepts what has taken place and moves forward. The time has come for Elisha to become the mentor. Whether he feels adequate or not, the moment has been thrust upon him. And through God's affirmation, he will find that he is ready. I wonder how often we as ministers feel inadequate. I wonder how often we think I can never be good enough or strong enough or faithful enough. But the thing is, I believe God uses us in those moments. If anything, his work is lifted up in our own humility and desire to be our best for him. This text shows us that. It shows us that there is a time when the mantle is passed from mentor to protege. And when that time comes, we begin to trust that God has the ability to use us even amidst our feelings of inadequacy. So not only do we see this important tension existing between devotion and change, and not only do we realize that we need to recognize those times in our lives when we need to be mentored and when we need to become the mentor. But we also begin to realize that part of the minister's journey involves going back. Up to this point, Elisha's journey has seemed rather aimless. He's followed a very roundabout, circular route that didn't seem to be headed anywhere, and in the process, he's lost his mentor. Even so, look at how differently Elisha is now being pictured. Not long after he tore his clothes, he picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan River. Can you imagine him standing there with the entire promised land in front of him? Not sure if he could do it, but knowing it was time... He was standing exactly where Joshua had stood when he parted this very river and in doing so proved his worthiness to succeed Moses at the task at hand. It was Joshua who parted the Jordan River and led the Israelites into the promised land, not Moses. And now Joshua, Moses' young protege, is being emulated through Elisha. The text says that Elisha then took the mantle that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it was parted, and he went over. If it was ever doubted before, let there be no question now. Elisha's parting of the river has confirmed his calling. His request of Elijah has been granted by Yahweh, the only one who could have ever fulfilled it. When I was 19 years old, fresh out of my first year of college, I decided to sign up to be a summer missionary in the Philippines. Now, I'd never been out of the country before. My only mission trip experience had been a week-long trip to Colorado the spring break before, and I didn't know a single person going on the trip. My dad was thrilled. Even so, that May, I found myself flying from Dallas to Los Angeles to Honolulu to Manila to a place called Butuan City where I took a four-hour bus ride to a ferry boat that took me to the small Kamegan Island where I would be staying for two months with three teammates and a couple of translators. Now, if you don't already know me, it might be hard to tell, but I'm pretty girly. In fact... (laughs) I didn't everyone's laughing I didn't really know this about myself until this trip believe it or not but I have to admit sleeping outside in a sleeping bag every night using one bucket of water to bathe and using that same bucket to wash the three pairs of pants and four shirts we were allotted for our two-month stay can really separate the men from the boys or in my case the girls from the even girlier. Nevertheless, even though it was one of the hardest experiences of my life and even though I tend to look back at that time and say, I can't believe I did that, I found myself in love with the people, the country, the culture. I even found myself not wanting to leave. So in my first week back at church in the States, one could imagine why I might have felt a little overwhelmed. Anyone who's been immersed in another culture for long enough can relate. Coming back to America, specifically the American church, can be difficult. I remember feeling too much culture shock to even sing. Here I was in this huge, big, beautiful church building surrounded by all of these people who were more than taken care of when literally a week before I was sitting on a tree stump surrounded by maybe 12 people all wearing the same grimy clothes we probably wore the day before but experiencing church for what felt like the first time. I felt confused, sad, and even angry. But it was in that moment that I realized something my 19-year-old self could have never known before that trip. You see, I went on a mission trip because I naively thought that I might change other people, but really, they changed me. And it was time for me to come back to where I'd started. Except this time, I was different, better, more equipped. (laughs) Seminary is a lot like that. It equips us, and then it sends us back, just like Elisha. After all was said and done, after Elisha completed his journey and let go of his mentor, he picked up his mantle, and he went back. Back to the prophets who had been there before, back to the same world of war and royalty and apostasy, Elisha went back but he was different now. As ministers, we too will be sent back, and we too will be different than we were before. Even if we have continued our ties of ministry while in seminary, there's a time that will come when the cord must eventually be cut, and we must be fully immersed within the very place that beckoned us on this journey to begin with. And when that time comes... Will we be able to say that we allowed ourselves to experience a transformative journey that has equipped us for the better? The faithful minister seeks growth and understanding in the journey, not the quest. Does that mean then that there is no quest, no common goal that we work towards as ministers or more importantly as Christians? Of course not. We could never forget Paul's passionate confession that in all things he pressed on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. We want to know Christ and to be like Christ and to live our lives as his ambassadors. In my family, we are gift givers. To say we believe a gift holds much meaning is a major understatement. You should see us all around Christmas time. My sisters and I spend months meticulously making lists for every person that's going to get a gift. We spend hours and thought of what we're going to get them and generally we worry up until Christmas day about whether or not our gift will sufficiently let the recipient know how much we love them. Now it sounds stressful but we wouldn't have it any other way. On Christmas morning, we each open our gifts one by one, and we take absolute delight on the expression in each person's face as they open theirs. My dad opens his gifts in what we like to call slow motion, so that the moment doesn't pass by too quickly. We just love sharing joy with each other in this way. So, imagine my horror. When my first Christmas married my husband's family, Everyone opened their gifts at the same time. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. It was just, I didn't have time to find joy between the giving and the receiving. Now, years have passed since that first Christmas, and my amazing in-laws have been lovingly receptive to opening the gifts a little more slowly just for me. (laughs) And even though that memory of my first married Christmas will always bring a lot of laughter and jokes In a way, it symbolizes a journey and a quest. Both exist. Both are important. Both have value. But there's a journey within the quest, and the journey matters. It's the journey that shapes us and in turn shapes others. It's the journey that does the doing when we least expect it. So may we seek to be faithful by finding understanding within our journey. May we notice the beauty around us in our trek. May we trust that transformation is taking place. May we let transformation take place. And may we allow God to fully equip us in the minister's journey as we stand before our own River Jordan and prepare to go back.